Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, another great short story from Bret Hart. This one titled, The Youngest Miss Piper. I do not think that any of us who enjoyed the acquaintance of the Piper girls or the hospitality of Judge Piper, their father, ever cared for the youngest sister. Not on account of her extreme youth, for the eldest Miss Piper confessed to twenty-six, and the youth of the youngest sister was established solely, I think, by one big braid down her back. Neither was it because she was the plainest, for the beauty of the Piper girls was a recognized general distinction, and the youngest Miss Piper was not entirely devoid of the family charms. Nor was it from any lack of intelligence, nor from any defective social quality, for her precocity was astounding, and her good-humored frankness alarming. Neither do I think it could be said that a slight deafness, which might impart an embarrassing publicity to any statement, the reverse of our general feeling, that might be confided by any one to her private ear, was a sufficient reason, for it was pointed out that she always understood everything that Tom Sparrow told her in his ordinary tone of voice. Briefly, it was very possible that Delaware, the youngest Miss Piper, did not like us. Yet it was fondly believed by us that the other sisters failed to show that indifference to our existence shown by Miss Delaware, although the heart-burnings, misunderstandings, jealousies, hopes and fears, and finally the chivalrous resignation with which we at last accepted the long-foregone conclusion that they were not for us, and far beyond our reach, is not a part of this voracious chronicle. Enough that none of the flirtations of her elder sisters affected or were shared by the youngest Miss Piper. She moved in this heartbreaking atmosphere with sublime indifference, treating her sister's affairs with what we considered rank simplicity or appalling frankness. Their few admirers who were weak enough to attempt to gain her mediation or confidence had reason to regret it. "'It's no kind of use giving me goodies,' she said to a helpless suitor of Louisiana Piper's who had offered to bring her some sweets. "'For I ain't got no influence with Lou, and if I don't give him up to her when she hears of it, she'll nag me and hate you like pison. Unless,' she added thoughtfully, "'it was winter green lozenges. Lou can't stand them, or anybody who eats them within a mile.' It is needless to add that the miserable man, thus put upon his gallantry, was obliged in honor to provide Dell with the wintergreen lozenges that kept him in disfavor and at a distance. Unfortunately, too, any predilection or pity for any particular suitor of her sister's was attended by even more disastrous consequences. It was reported that while acting as Gooseberry, a role usually assigned to her, between Virginia Piper and an exceptionally timid young surveyor, during a ramble, she conceived a rare sentiment of humanity towards the unhappy man. After once or twice lingering behind in the ostentatious picking of a wayside flower, or running on ahead to look at a mountain view, without any apparent effect on the shy and speechless youth, she decoyed him aside while her elder sister rambled indifferently and somewhat scornfully on. The youngest Miss Piper leaped upon the rail of a fence, and, with the stalk of a thimbleberry in her mouth, "'swung her small feet to and fro, and surveyed him dispassionately. "'You don't seem to be catching on,' she said tentatively. "'The young man smiled feebly and interrogatively. 
"'Don't seem to be either follerin' suit nor trumpin,' continued Dill bluntly. Uh, "'I suppose so. That is, I fear that Miss Virginia—' he stammered. "'Speak up! I'm a little deaf. Say it again?' said Dill, screwing up her eyes and eyebrows. The young man was obliged to admit in stentorian tones that his progress had been scarcely satisfactory. "'You're going on too slow, that's it.' "'said Dill critically. "'Why, when Captain Savage meandered along here with Jimmy, "'meaning Virginia, last week, "'afore we got as far as this, "'he'd reeled off a heap of Byron and Tennyson, "'and sitch, and only yesterday, "'Jinny and Dr. Beveridge was blowing thistletops "'to know which was a flirt "'all along the trail past the crossroads. "'Why, you ain't picked as much as a single berry for Jinny, "'let alone Lad's Love or Johnny Jump-Ups and Kiss Me's, "'and you keep talking across me. "'You, too, till I'm tired.' "'Now look here,' she burst out with sudden decision. "'Jinny's gone on ahead in a kind of a huff, "'and I reckon she's done that afore, too, "'and you'll find her, just as Spinner did, "'on the rise of the hill, "'sitting on a pine stump and looking like this.' "'Here the youngest Miss Piper locked her fingers over her left knee "'and drew it slightly up, "'with a sublime indifference to the exposure "'of considerable small-ankled red stocking, "'and with a far-off, plaintive stare achieved a colorable imitation of her elder sister's probable attitude. Then you just go up softly, like as you as a bear, and clap your hands on her eyes, and say in a disguised voice like this. And here Dell turned on a high falsetto beyond any masculine compass. Who's who? Just like in forfeits. But she'll be sure to know me, said the surveyor timidly. She won't said Dell in scornful skepticism. "'I hardly think,' stammered the young man, with an awkward smile, "'that I, in fact, she'll discover me before I can get beside her. "'Not if you go softly, for she'll be setting back to the road. "'So, gazing away, just like this, just so,' the youngest Miss Piper again stared dreamily in the distance, "'and you'll creep up just behind, like this.' "'But won't she be angry? "'I haven't known her long. "'That is, don't you see?' "'He stopped embarrassedly. "'Can't hear a word you say,' said Dell, "'shaking her head decisively. "'You've got my deaf ear. "'Speak louder, or come closer.' "'But here the instruction suddenly ended, "'once and for all time, "'for whether the young man was seriously anxious "'to perfect himself, "'whether he was truly grateful to the young girl "'and tried to show it, whether he was emboldened by the childish appeal of the long brown distinguishing braid down her back, or whether he suddenly found something peculiarly provocative in the reddish-brown eyes between their thick-set hedge of lashes, and with the trim figure and piquant pose, and was seized with that hysteric desperation which sometimes attacks timidity itself, I cannot say. Enough that he suddenly put his arm around her waist and his lips to her soft satin cheek, "'peppered and salted as it was by sun-freckles and mountain air, "'and received a sound box on the ear for his pains. "'The incident was closed, "'and he did not repeat the experiment on either sister. "'The disclosure of his rebuff seemed, however, "'to give a singular satisfaction to Red Gulch. <laughs> "'We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages.' 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And now, back to our story. While it may be gathered from this that the youngest Miss Piper was impervious to general masculine advances, it was not until later that Red Gulch was thrown into skeptical astonishment by the rumors that all this time she really had a lover. Allusion has been made to the charge that her deafness did not prevent her from perfectly understanding the ordinary tone of voice of a certain Mr. Thomas Sparrow. No undue significance was attached to this fact through the very insignificance and impossibility of that individual. A lanky, red-haired youth incapacitated from manual labor through lameness, a clerk in a general store at the crossroads. He had never been the recipient of Judge Piper's hospitality. He had never visited the house, even with parcels. Apparently his only interviews with her or any of the family had been over the counter. To do him justice, he certainly had never seemed to seek any nearer acquaintance. He was not at the church door when her sisters, beautiful in their Sunday gowns, filled into the aisle, with little Delaware bringing up the rear. He was not at the Democratic barbecue that we attended without reference to our personal politics, and solely for the sake of Judge Piper and the girls. Nor did he go to the agricultural fair ball, open to all. His abstention was believed to be owing to his lameness, to a wholesome consciousness of his own social defects, or an inordinate passion for reading cheap scientific textbooks, which did not, however, add fluency nor conviction to his speech. Neither had the abstraction of a student, for his accounts were kept with an accuracy which struck us, who dealt at the store, as ignobly practical and even malignant. Possibly we might have expressed this opinion more strongly, but for a certain rude vigor of repartee which he possessed, and a suggestion that he might have a temper on occasion. Them red-haired chaps is like to be tetchy and kinder to see blood through their eyelashes, had been suggested by an observing customer. In short, little as we knew of the youngest Miss Piper, he was the last man we should have suspected her to select as an admirer. What we did know of their public relations, purely commercial ones, implied the reverse of any cordial understanding. The provisioning of the Piper household was entrusted to Dell, with other practical odds and ends of housekeeping, not ornamental, and the following is said to be a truthful record of one of their overheard interviews at the store. The youngest Miss Piper, entering, displacing a quantity of goods in the center to make a sideways seat for herself, and looking around loftily as she took a memorandum book and pencil from her pocket. Ahem! If I ain't taking you away from your studies, Mr. Sparrow, maybe you'll be good enough to look here a minute. But, in affected politeness, if I'm disturbing you, I can come another time. Sparrow, placing the book he'd been reading carefully under the counter, and advancing to Miss Delaware with a complete ignoring of her irony. What can we do for you today, Miss Piper? Miss Delaware, with a great suavity of manner, examining her memorandum book, "'I suppose it wouldn't be shocking your delicate feelings too much "'to inform you that the canned lobster and oysters you sent us yesterday 
wasn't fit for hogs. Sparrow, blandly, "'They wasn't intended for them, Miss Piper. "'If we had known you were having company over from Red Gulch to dinner, "'we might have provided something more suitable for them. "'We have a fair quality of oil cake and corn cobs in stock at reduced figures, "'but the canned provisions were for your own family.' Miss Delaware, secretly pleased at this sarcastic allusion to her sister's friends, but concealing her delight. "'I admire to hear you talk that way, Mr. Sparrow. It's better than minstrels or a circus. I suppose you get it out of that book,' indicating the concealed volume. "'What do you call it?' Sparrow, politely. "'The First Principles of Geology.' Miss Delaware, leaning sideways and curling her little fingers around her pink ear, "'Did you say the first principles of geology or politeness? "'You know I'm so deaf, but of course it couldn't be that.' "'Sparrow, easily. "'Oh, no, you seem to have that in your hand,' "'pointing to Miss Delaware's memorandum book. "'You were quoting from it when you came in.' "'Miss Delaware, after an affected silence of deep resignation. "'Well, it's too bad folks can't just spend their lives "'listed to such elegant talk.' I'd admire to do nothing else. But there's my family up at Cottonwood, and they must eat. They're that low that they expect me to waste my time getting food for them here, instead of drinking in the first principles of the grocery. Geology, suggested Sparrow blandly. The history of rock formation. Geology, accepted Miss Delaware apologetically. The history of rocks, which is so necessary for knowing just how much sand you can put in the sugar. "'so I reckon I'll leave my list here, "'and you can have the things toted to Cottonwood "'when you've got through with your first principles.' "'She tore out a list of her commissions "'from a page of her memorandum book, "'leaped lightly from the counter, "'threw her brown braid from her left shoulder "'to its proper place down her back, "'shook out her skirts deliberately, "'and saying, "'Thank you for a most improving afternoon, Mr. Sparrow, "'sailed demurely out of the store.' A few auditors of this narrative thought it inconsistent that a daughter of Judge Piper and a sister of the angelic host should put up with a mere clerk's familiarity, but it was pointed out that she gave him as good as he sent, and the story was generally credited. But certainly no one ever dreamed that it pointed to any more precious confidences between them. I think the secret burst out upon the family, with other things, at the big picnic at Reservoir Canyon. This festivity had been arranged for weeks previously and was undertaken chiefly by the Red Gulch contingent, as we were called, as a slight return to the Piper family for their frequent hospitality. The Piper sisters were expected to bring nothing but their own personal graces and attend to the ministration of such viands and delicacies as the boys had profusely supplied. The site selected was Reservoir Canyon, a beautiful, triangular valley with very steep sides, one of which was crowned by the immense reservoir of the Pioneer Ditch Company. The sheer flanks of the canyon descended in furrowed lines of vines and clinging bushes, like folds of falling skirts, until they broke again into flounces of spangled shrubbery over a broad-level carpet of monkshood, mariposas, lupines, poppies, and daisies. Tempered and secluded from the sun's rays by its lofty shadows, the delicious obscurity of the canyon was in sharp contrast to the fiery mountain trail that in the full glaze of the noonday sky made its tortuous way down the hillside, like a stream of lava, to plunge suddenly into the valley and extinguish itself in its coolness 
as in a lake. The heavy odors of wild honeysuckle, syringa, and cyanethus that hung over it were lightened and freshened by the sharp spicing of pine and bay. The mountain breeze, which sometimes shook the serrated tops of the large redwoods above with a chill from the remote snow peaks, even in the heart of summer, never reached the little valley. It seemed an ideal place for a picnic. Everybody was therefore astonished to hear that an objection was suddenly raised to this perfect site. They were still more astonished to know that the objector was the youngest Miss Piper. Pressed to give her reasons, she had replied that the locality was dangerous, that the reservoir placed upon the mountain, notoriously old and worn out, had been rendered more unsafe by false economy and skillful and hasty repairs to satisfy speculating stockbrokers, and that it had lately shown signs of leakage and sapping of its outer walls, that, in the event of an outbreak, the triangular valley, from which there was no outlet, would be instantly flooded. Asked still more pressingly to give her authority for these details, she at first hesitated, and then gave the name of Tom Sparrow. The derision with which this statement was received by us all, as the opinion of a sedentary clerk, was quite natural and obvious, but not the anger which it excited in the breast of Judge Piper, for it was not generally known that the judge was the holder of a considerable number of shares in the Pioneer Ditch Company, and that large dividends had been lately kept up by a false economy of expenditure, to expedite a sharp deal in the stock, by which the judge and others could sell out of a failing company. Rather, it was believed that the judge's anger was due only to the discovery of Sparrow's influence over his daughter, and his interference with the social affairs of Cottonwood. It was said that there was a sharp scene between the youngest Miss Piper and the combined forces of the judge and the elder sisters, which ended in the former's resolute refusal to attend the picnic at all if that site was selected. As Delaware was known to be fearless, even to the point of recklessness, and fond of gaiety, her refusal only intensified the belief that she was merely sticking up for Sparrow's judgment, without any reference to her own personal safety or that of her sister's. The warning was laughed away, the opinion of Sparrow treated with ridicule as the dyspeptic and envious expression of an impractical man. It was pointed out that the reservoir had lasted a long time, even in its alleged ruinous state, that only a miracle of coincidence could make it break down that particular afternoon of the picnic, that even if it did happen, there was no direct proof that it would seriously flood the valley, or at best add more than a spice of excitement to the affair. The Red Gulch contingent, who would be there, was quite as capable of taking care of the ladies, in case of any accident, as any lame crank who wouldn't, but could only croak a warning to them from a distance. A few even wished something might happen that they might have an opportunity of showing their superior devotion. Indeed, the prospect of carrying the half-submerged sisters, in a condition of helpless loveliness, in their arms to a place of safety, was a fascinating possibility." The warning was conspicuously ineffective. Everybody looked eagerly forward to the day and the unchanged locality. To the greatest hopefulness and anticipation was added the stirring of defiance. And when at last the appointed hour had arrived, the picnic party passed down the twisting mountain trail through the heat and glare in a fever of enthusiasm. It was a pretty sight to view this sparkling procession the girls cool and radiant in their white, blue, and yellow muslins and flying ribbons, 
"'the contingent in its cleanest ducks "'and blue and red flannel shirts. "'The judge, white waistcoated and Panama-hatted, "'with a new dignity borrowed from the previous circumstances, "'and three or four impressive Chinamen "'bringing up the rear with hampers "'as it at last debouched into Reservoir Canyon. "'Here they dispersed themselves over the limited area, "'scarcely half an acre, "'with the freedom of escaped schoolchildren. "'They were secure in their woodland privacy.' They were overlooked by no high road and its passing teams. They were safe from accidental intrusion from the settlement. Indeed, they went so far as to affect the exclusiveness of clique. At first they amused themselves by casting humorously defiant eyes at the long, low-ditch reservoir, which peeped over the green wall of the ridge, six hundred feet above them. At times they even simulated an exaggerated terror of it, and one recognized humorist, "'declaimed a grotesque appeal to its forbearance "'with delightful local allusions. "'Others pretended to discover near a woodman's hut "'among the belt of pines at the top of the descending trail "'the peeping figure of the ridiculous and envious sparrow. "'But all this was presently forgotten in the actual festivity. "'Small as was the range of the valley, "'it still allowed retreats during the dances "'for waiting couples among the convenient laurel and manzanita bushes "'which flounced the mountainside.' After the dancing, old-fashioned children's games were revived with great laughter and half-hearted and coy protests from the ladies, notably one pastime known as I'm a Pinin', in which ingenious performance the victim was obliged to stand in the center of a circle and publicly pine for a member of the opposite sex. Some hilarity was occasioned by the mischievous Miss Georgie Piper declaring, when it came to her turn, "'that she was pining for a look at the face of Tom Sparrow just now. "'In this local trifling two hours passed "'until the party sat down for the long-looked-for repast. "'It was here that the health of Judge Piper "'was neatly proposed by the editor of the Argus. "'The judge responded with great dignity and some emotion. "'He reminded them that it had been his humble endeavor "'to promote harmony, "'that harmony so characteristic of American principles, "'in social as he had in political circles, and particularly among the strangely constituted yet purely American elements of frontier life. He accepted the present festivity with its overflowing hospitalities, not in recognition of himself, yes, yes, nor of his family, enthusiastic protest, but of that American principle. If at one time it seemed probable that these festivities might be marred by the machinations of envy, groans were heard, he could say that, looking around him, and he had never before felt, er, that. Here the judge stopped short, reeled slightly forward, caught at a camp stool, recovered himself with an apologetic smile, and turned inquiringly to his neighbor. A light laugh, instantly suppressed, in what was at first supposed to be the effect of the overflowing hospitality upon the speaker himself went around the male circle until it suddenly appeared that half a dozen others had started to their feet at the same time, with white faces, and that one of the ladies had screamed. "'What is it?' everybody was asking with interrogatory smiles. It was Judge Piper who replied. "'A little shock of an earthquake,' he said blandly. "'A mere thrill!' "'I think,' he added with a faint smile, we may say that nature herself has applauded our efforts in good old Californian fashion, and signified her assent. What are you saying, Flutter? I was thinking, sir, said Flutter deferentially, in a lower voice, that if anything was wrong in the reservoir, this shock, you know, might. 
he was interrupted by a faint crashing and crackling sound, and looking up, beheld a good-sized boulder, evidently detached from some greater height, strike the upland plateau at the left of the trail and bound into the fringe of the forest beside it. A slight cloud of dust marked its course, and then lazily floated away in mid-air. But it had been watched agitatedly, and it was evident that the singular loss of nervous balance which is apt to affect all those who go through the slightest earthquake experience was felt by all. But some sense of humor, however, remained. "'Looks as if the water risks we took ain't going to cover earthquakes,' drawled Dick Prisney. "'Still, that wasn't a bad shot, if we only knew what they were aiming at.' "'Do be quiet,' said Virginia Piper, her cheeks pink with excitement. "'Listen, can't you? "'What's that funny murmuring you hear now and then up there?' "'It's only the snow wind playing with the pines in the summit.' "'You girls won't allow anybody any fun but yourselves.' "'But here a scream from Georgie, "'who, assisted by Captain Fairfax, "'had mounted a campstool at the mouth of the valley, "'attracted everybody's attention. "'She was standing upright with dilated eyes, "'staring at the top of the trail. "'Look! Look!' she said excitedly. "'If the trail isn't moving!' "'Everybody faced in that direction.' At the first glance it seemed indeed as if the trail was actually moving, wriggling and undulating its tortuous way down the mountain like a huge snake, only swollen to twice its usual size. But the second glance showed it to be no longer a trail, but a channel of water, whose stream, lifted in a boar-like wall four or five feet high, was plunging down into the devoted valley. For an instant they were unable to comprehend even the nature of the catastrophe. The reservoir was directly over their heads. The bursting of its wall, they had imagined, would naturally bring down the water in a dozen trickling streams or falls over the cliff above them and along the flanks of the mountain. But that its suddenly liberated volume should overflow the upland beyond and then descend in a pent-up flood by their own trail and their only avenue of escape had been beyond their wildest fancy. They met this smiting truth with that characteristic short laugh with which the American usually receives the blow of fate or the unexpected, as if he recognized only the absurdity of the situation. Then they ran to the women, collected them together, and dragged them to vantages of fancied security among the bushes which flounced the long skirts of the mountain walls. But I'll leave this part of the description to the characteristic language of one of the party. When the flood struck us, it did not seem to take any stock of us in particular, but laid itself out to go for that picnic for all it was worth. It wiped it off the face of the earth in about twenty-five seconds. It first made a clean break from stern to stern, carrying everything along with it. The first thing I saw was old Judge Piper putting on his best licks to get away from a big can of strawberry ice cream that was trundling after him and trying to empty itself on his collar whenever a bigger wave lifted it. He was followed by what was left of the brass band, the big drum just humping itself to keep abreast of the ice cream, mixed up with camp stools, music stands, a few Chinamen, and then what they call in them big San Francisco processions, citizens generally. The whole thing swept up the canyon inside of thirty seconds. Then, what Captain Fairfax called, the reflex action and the laws of motion happened, and darned if the whole blamed procession didn't sweep back again, this time all the heavy artillery such as camp kettles, larger beer kegs, bottles, glasses, and crockery that was left behind, taking the lead now, 
"'and Judge Piper in that big ice-cream can "'bringing up the rear. "'As the judge passed us the second time, "'we noticed that the ice-cream can, "'heaven swallowed water, "'was kinder losing its wind, "'and we encouraged the old man by shouting out, Five to one on him! "'And then you wouldn't believe what followed. "'Why, darn my skin! "'When that reflex met the current at the other end, "'it just swirled around again "'in what Captain Fairfax called "'the centrifugal curve.' "'and just went round and round the canyon "'like happens when you're washing the dirt "'out of a prospecting pan, "'every now and then washing some one of the boys "'that was in it like scum up again the banks. "'We managed in this way to snake out the judge, "'just as he was sailing round on the home stretch, "'passing the quarter post two lengths ahead of the can. "'A good deal of the ice cream had washed away, "'but it took us ten minutes to shake the cracked ice "'and powdered salt out of the old man's clothes.' "'and warm him up again in the laurel bush where he was clinging. "'This sort of here-we-go-round-the-mulberry bush "'kept on till most of the humans was got out, "'and only the furniture of the picnic was left in the race. "'Then it got kinder mixed up "'and went sloshing round here and there "'as the water kept coming down by the trail. "'Then Lulu Piper, who I was holding up all the time in the laurel bush, "'gets an idea, for all she was wet and draggled.' "'and as the things went bobbing around, "'she calls out the figures of a cotillion to them. Two camp stools forward, sashay and back to your places. "'Change partners, hands all around.' "'She was clear grit, you bet. "'And the joke caught on, and the other girls joined in. "'And it kind of cheered them, for they was wanting it. "'Then Flutter allowed to pacify him "'by saying he just figured up the size of the reservoir "'and the size of the canyon, "'and he calculated that the cube was about equal.' "'and the canyon couldn't flood any more. "'And then Lulu, who was pert as a jay "'and couldn't be fooled, speaks up and says, "'What's the matter with the ditch, Dick?' "'Lord, then we knew that she knew the worst, "'for of course all the water in the ditch itself, fifty miles of it, "'was draining now into that reservoir "'and was bound to come down into the canyon. "'It was at this point that the situation became really desperate.' "'for they had now crawled up the steep sides "'as far as the bushes afforded foothold, "'and the water was still rising. "'The chatter of the girls ceased. "'There were long silences "'in which the men discussed the wildest plans "'and proposed to tear their shirts into strips "'to make ropes to support the girls "'by sticks driven into the mountainside. "'It was in one of those intervals "'that the distinct strokes of a woodsman's axe "'were heard high on the upland "'at the point where the trail descended to the canyon. "'Every ear was alert.' "'but only those on one side of the canyon "'could get a fair view of the spot. "'This was the good fortune of Captain Fairfax and Georgie Piper, "'who had climbed to the highest bush on that side "'and were now standing up, "'gazing excitedly in that direction. "'Someone's cut down a tree at the head of the trail,' "'shouted Fairfax. "'The response and joyful explanation, "'For a dam across the trail,' "'was on everybody's lips at the same time.' "'but the strokes of the axe were slow and painfully intermittent. "'Impatience burst out. "'Yell at him to hurry up! "'Why haven't they brought two men?' "'It's only one man,' shouted the captain, "'and he seems to be a cripple. "'By Jiminy! "'It's, yeah, it's Tom, it's, yes, it's Tom Sparrow!' "'There was a dead silence. "'Then, I grieve to say, "'shame and its twin brother Rage "'took possession of their weak humanity. "'Oh, yes!' "'It was all of a piece. "'Why in the name of folly hadn't he sent for an able-bodied man? "'Were they to be drowned through his cranky obstinacy?' "'The blows still went on slowly. "'Presently, however, 
"'It seemed to alternate with other blows, "'but alas, they were slower, "'and if possible, feebler. "'Have they got another cripple to work?' "'word the contingent in one furious voice. "'No, it's a woman, a little one. "'Yes, a girl. "'Hello. Why, as sure as you live, it's Delaware.' "'A spontaneous cheer burst from the contingent, "'partly as a rebuke to Sparrow, I think, "'partly from some shame over their previous rage. "'He could take it as he liked. "'Still the blows went on distressingly slow. "'The girls were hoisted on the men's shoulders.' The men were half submerged. Then there was a painful pause, then a crumbling crash. Another cheer went up from the canyon. It's down, straight across the trail, shouted Fairfax, and a part of the bank is on top of it. There was another moment of suspense. Would it hold, or be carried away by the momentum of the flood? But it held. In a few moments, Fairfax again gave voice to the cheering news that the flow had stopped and the submerged trail was reappearing. In twenty minutes it was clear, a muddy riverbed, but possible to climb. Of course, there was no diminution of the water in the canyon, which had no outlet, yet it now was possible for the party to swing from bush to bush along the mountainside until they reached the foot of the trail. There were some missteps and mishaps, flounderings in the water, and some dangerous rescues, but in half an hour the whole concourse stood upon the trail and commenced the ascent, "'It was a slow, difficult, and lugubrious procession. "'I fear not the best-tempered one, "'now that the stimulus of danger and chivalry was past. "'When they reached the dam made by the fallen tree, "'although they were obliged to make a long detour "'to avoid its steep sides, "'they could see how successfully it had diverted the current "'to a declivity on the other side. "'But strangely enough they were greeted by nothing else. "'Sparrow and the youngest Miss Piper were gone, "'and when they at last reached the high road, they were astounded to hear from a passing teamster that no one in the settlement knew anything of the disaster. This was the last drop in their cup of bitterness. They who had expected that the settlement was waiting breathlessly for their rescue, who anticipated that they would be welcomed as heroes, were obliged to meet the ill-concealed amusement of passengers and friends at their disheveled and bedraggled appearance, which suggested only the blundering mishaps of an ordinary summer outing. "'Boatin' in the reservoir and fell in? "'Playin' a canal boat in the ditch?' "'were some of the cheerful hypotheses. "'The fleeting sense of gratitude they had felt for their deliverers "'was dissipated by the time they had reached their homes, "'and their rancor increased by the information "'that when the earthquake occurred, "'Mr. Tom Sparrow and Miss Delaware "'were enjoying a little time alone in the forest, "'he having a half-holiday by virtue of the festival, "'and that the earthquake had revived his fears of a catastrophe.' The two had procured axes in the woodman's hut and did what they thought was necessary to relieve the situation of the picnickers. But the very modesty of this account of their own performance had the effect of belittling the catastrophe itself, and the picnickers' report of their exceeding peril was received with incredulous laughter. For the first time in the history of Red Gulch there was a serious division between the Piper family, supported by the contingent, and the rest of the settlement. Tom Sparrow's warning was remembered by the settlement and the ingratitude of the picnickers to their rescuers commented upon. The actual calamity to the reservoir was more or less attributed to the imprudent and reckless contiguity of the revelers on that day, and there were not wanting those who referred the accident itself to the machinations of the scheming ditch director, Piper. It was said that there was a stormy scene in the Piper household that evening. 
the judge had demanded that Delaware should break off her acquaintance with Sparrow, and she had refused. The judge had demanded of Sparrow's employer that he should discharge him, and he had been met with the astounding information that Sparrow was already a silent partner in the concern. At this revelation, Judge Piper was alarmed. While he might object to a clerk who could not support a wife, as a consistent Democrat, he could not oppose a fairly prosperous tradesman. A final appeal was made to Delaware. She was implored to consider the situation of her sisters, who had all made more ambitious marriages, or were about to make them. Why should she now degrade the family by marrying a country storekeeper? It is said that here the youngest Miss Piper made a memorable reply, and a revelation the truth of which was never gainsaid. "'You all want to know why I'm going to marry Tom Sparrow?' she queried, standing up and facing the whole family circle. "'Yes!' "'Why, I prefer him to the whole caboodle that you girls have married or are going to marry?' she continued, meditatively biting the end of her braid. "'Yes!' "'Well, he's the only man of the whole lot that hasn't proposed to me first. "'It is presumed that Sparrow made good the omission, "'or that the family were glad to get rid of her, "'for they were married that autumn.' And really, a later comparison of the family records shows that while Captain Fairfax remained Captain Fairfax, and the other sons-in-law did not advance proportionately in standing or riches, the lame storekeeper of Red Gulch became the Honorable Senator Tom Sparrow. Thanks for joining us for this great short story from Bret Hart, titled The Youngest Miss Piper. Hope you enjoyed it. We always appreciate reviews, and we've had some reviews lately for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. I'll share a few with you. The first five stars, the best. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is better than therapy for me. I feel a friendship for our narrator, and I'm grateful for the great stories. This is just the thing to cure the blues and maybe learn something along the way. Thank you. From Patty in Bluefield, West Virginia. Patty Peebles, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, very good, five stars, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Love this podcast. Good classic stories from old. Wish you could do more Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, like his stories of Sir Nigel and others. All your stories help me remember better times of youth. Down from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Five stars. What a wonderful way to revisit old classics. Thank you. Now from KRGNAL, Apple Podcast, Spain. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to sit down and write us these reviews. They're greatly, greatly appreciated, and they help new listeners decide to give us a try. As most of you now know, we offer new episodes for 1001 Classic Short Stories every Wednesday and Sunday. The Wednesday episodes come out at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. The Sunday episodes now come out around noon, Eastern Time. This being done to give our listeners a little bit more of the weekend in order to enjoy our stories. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Stay safe out there, everyone, and we'll be back soon.